Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, readers. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 75. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today, we have a special episode for you, and it's a milestone of sorts. This is only the second in-person interview we've had for the show, and the first one recorded in our new home studio. If you're lucky, I may post some Instagram pics of the giant stack of books Dave brought along to have at hand while we recorded, and you can totally see my bathroom in the background, just keeping it real for you. Dave's a writer and a college professor here in Louisville. He's also a real-life friend, like the kind where we go to each other's kids' birthday parties. There's a reason this episode is airing in April, and I'm afraid you might hit delete when you find out why. Here's the thing. It's National Poetry Month, and Dave is a published poet, and I know a lot of readers think they're just not into poetry. And after this episode, if you're still not convinced, that's fine. But I came away from our conversation thinking that even though poetry is often scoffed at as being irrelevant these days, 2017 is a great time for me to read more poems, and I'd be surprised if a whole lot of readers don't agree after listening to Dave. We covered so many topics I wasn't expecting to get into at all, right from the beginning, where Dave kicks us off with a story about a girl. Let's get to it. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. So this is a milestone. This is the second episode recorded in the What Should I Read Next home studio. Very nice. Well, it's a lovely home studio. The bathroom's never too far away. Neither is <laughs> the refrigerators. <laughs> the wonderful. We will have to post a picture to Instagram so people can see what you're talking about. Because I just photographed all your, your books mm-hmm. with my... Uh, bathroom sink in the background. Right, right. We For atmosphere. We were like, oh, maybe we should shut that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll just tease people and post the finished version with the shut bathroom door. Either one will work, I think. Actually, this is the first episode in the new What Should I Read Next Home studio. So, milestone. Yay. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so we are talking about poetry today. So, right off the bat, so we don't lose people who are like, eh, blah, not for me. Why yeah. do I care? Right. Like, sell us on poetry real quick. Why should readers care? Oh, man. That's the big question, isn't it? Um, well, 
you have actually, and I don't even know if you know this, but conversations we have had about fellow authors and conferences we've been to have really sold me on why poetry matters to Ooh. readers and writers. I don't know if you remember, we had one conversation about a certain author, and I'm sure we were extremely kind and non-gossipy <laughs> during this conversation. Pretty catty. Extremely <laughs> gracious. You were saying, you've taught poetry workshops in the past, and right. you were saying how this certain author was like, that doesn't have anything to do with my work. I don't see why I would waste my time on something like that. Hmm. And I don't know what you told him, but you were, what's a, what's a gentle synonym for rant? Oh, you were explaining was... to me how yeah. poetry teaches you to be really careful with your words. And that's right. a valuable skill, oh, yeah. even right. if you're just a communicator and not sure. any kind of writer or a serious reader of anything sure. literary, but that it just teaches you how to use language. Right, right. And that's and for a writer, anyone who's interested in writing, when, when I hear writers talk about how they're not interested in poetry, it kind of raises an eyebrow, not because that's my mm -hmm. discipline or genre, but because um, I get not being, um, that that's not your go-to genre, but um, the idea of not being interested in it seems to be a mistake because what you learn from poems, reading them and writing them, is that brevity, which is valuable for writing of all kinds. Mm -hmm. But you also learn how to read without consuming, Whoa. which is a really important thing. I think especially in a world where we're kind of saturated with consumption-based you know, marketing, that everyone's trying to get your attention. Um, poetry teaches you more about uh, contemplation than consumption. And that's one of the reasons it's super important. Okay. I need some help unpacking that. So okay. I love yeah. the sound of reading yeah. without consuming, mm -hmm. but unpack that a little bit. What do you mean? Well, you know, you, um, there's, there's, um, so let's start with an, uh, an idea that uh, a lot of people don't read poetry because they think it's hard. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that might be true. There's a lot more maybe conceptual work going on in the average poem than there is the average book of fiction. Mm -hmm. That's a generalization, but um, there's this sort of perception that it's a more serious art form. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't buy that necessarily. I think it is more demanding mm -hmm. and intentionally more demanding. Uh, poets are doing in a small space what other authors are taking you know, books to do, mm -hmm. right? But what a poem does when you're engaging it is slow you down. Mm -hmm. You can't read through it without the danger of losing a lot of it. Okay, so you and I have talked about why poetry is valuable to the writer, mm -hmm. and now I'm constructing a theory on the fly about mm -hmm. how learning that skill of slowing down mm -hmm. and paying attention to very deliberate word choices and shorter mm -hmm. pieces could really benefit right. a reader reading anything. Right. Is there something to that? Am I on the right track? Oh, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely on the right track. I think the two, um, poetry in, in a unique way alongside that, uh, learning how to be a disciplined sort of thinker and an engager of art, literature, mm -hmm. of the world, um, sort of teaches us how to be human in a really unique way because of that aspect, that slow aspect before, and that's a very broad statement. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, if you to, to kind of handle that broad statement, you have these sort of poets that people, that are, that people that are readers will often know even if they read no poetry, mm -hmm. right? So they'll know probably Billy Collins, mm -hmm. 
They'll know Mary Oliver. Mm -hmm. They'll know Wendell Berry. Mm. Oh my gosh! Right? So, so sort of, that's sort of the <laughs> my experience of, with poetry. Right. Barry Dickinson, right. Oliver, and Collins well, are personal say, favorites. As someone who doesn't read a ton of poetry, right. so, so I've been tight. I was say the older ones would be mm -hmm. Frost, Dickinson, and Whitman, are kind mm -hmm. of the other ones that people have encountered, mm -hmm. um, and they're obviously um, <clears throat> not not living. Uh, but it's it's interesting. So that kind of proof. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons people go to those poets mm -hmm. is because those poets have something to teach us about existing and people know that tell, tell me more what do you mean well all three of those poets uh barry oliver and collins teach us about how to look at the world and enjoy it mm -hmm. and take it in um mary oliver's got a whole book of poems about dogs right mm -hmm. um which is uh obviously critically quite successful book. <laughs> uh, or, or, um, Collins has this sort of way of disarming us mm -hmm. as a poet, right? He's talking about one thing and then he modulates into something completely different. Mm -hmm. It's much more deep and um, substantive than we initially thought when he was talking about a billiard ball mm -hmm. or a playing card or a sandwich, right? <laughs> and, um, and Barry has this sort of, uh, you know, agrarian... Uh, wisdom literature feel right yeah he he teaches us about being slow and looking at the world right so all three of those poets uh, I think are critically successful because they write accessibly mm -hmm. right? we're not we're not approaching their poems going what what's the point here mm -hmm. um, but they they also write about things that are familiar and um, have depth to them that we would notice Every time I read a Mary Oliver poem, I go, I, I could have written this. Someone in my workshop could have written this. And that's not a crack at Mary Oliver. That's, uh, that's an observation that I think she might actually like. They put into words something that's not just individual, but very human. Oh, experience. yeah. Yeah, yeah, very broad. And again, it's not to say that the other disciplines don't do this. They absolutely do. It's just that poetry does it in such a small space mm -hmm. that we can um, engage it in a way that we wouldn't normally engage mm -hmm. a, a, a group of text, a mm -hmm. body of text, and without without the risk of getting too theoretical, which would also probably, which is what also makes people hate poems. <laughs> um, that that shortness um, is something that's supposed to be attractive yeah. and work in the poet's favor. Yeah. Right? So, if that makes any sense. But that's, I think that, that, and that's, that's the big difference between the contemplation and the consumption. So, so Dave, you're a poet yourself. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit and talk about your personal background mm -hmm. as a writer and as a poet. How did you find your way into that genre? Oh, I liked a girl, which is all. Are you serious? Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> I've never heard this story. She liked poems, and so I wrote some poems. How old were you? Uh, this was, this must have been early high school. And, um, How did you know she liked poems? Because she was reading poems in class. What was she reading? Uh, she had a book of E.E. E. Cummings poems. Oh, I liked E.E. Uh, e. Cummings in high yeah, school. Is that a high school girl thing that you like E.E. E. Cummings? Then? It's a high school boy thing, too, because <laughs> when I saw her reading that, I went out and I was like, hmm. So I went and got a book of poems. That was the first book of poetry I ever purchased with my own money. Uh, mine, too. Yeah. My really? First book of poetry, yeah. E.E. E. Cummings. And, um, and then so I wrote her some poems, and then she really liked them, and we dated for a while, and... 
It was really sweet. And then... Um, Do you still have those poems? Are they extant? Oh, extians? gosh. Yeah. I <laughs> Someone has them. <laughs> or they threw them out, hopefully. Um, I did... One of my high school girlfriends, I did try to write a song for her and play uh, the guitar and a song for her. And it was an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> yeah, like, it was so embarrassing. Um, and her whole family ended up being in the next room, but I had no idea. <laughs> And then I had to have dinner with them. Oh, God, it was just, it was so embarrassing. But, yeah, I've, I've got these sort of moments where I put myself out there, like um, like a sort of say-anything moment, and then it just... <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you apparently weren't scared off forever, because here we are. Right. No, no, I, I kept writing poems. That was that was what was funny. I, I stopped dating that girl, but I still wrote. Um, William Stafford, one of my favorite poets, has this uh, great um, quote uh, where he's asked... When did you start writing? Mm-hmm. Sort of this quintessential writer question, and he goes, "It's not. That's the wrong question. It's when did everyone else stop? Right? When we're children, writing poems and making stories and all mm-hmm. these things is such a natural thing, mm-hmm. and we don't. Uh, we do it almost involuntarily. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't do it with any judgment. Right? So his idea was that there's something in us that is a bit different. We in in a writer that they right, or he or she just doesn't stop, mm-hmm. right, where everyone else sort of does. They move on to other things that they're interested in, mm-hmm. or um, on the more sinister side, they you know, become cynical or decide their imagination isn't something worth cultivating or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, I I just kind of kept going after that little relationship and wrote poems in high school and mm-hmm. kept going in college and then realized that, like, that could actually be, like, I could, like, teach writing and literature and poetry and I was like that's a that's like a real career option isn't it oh yeah right so, <laughs> so, so that happens um yeah and uh yeah I that I, I love it I love um I try to write every day uh, or um very nearly every day I have a friend I share work with mm-hmm. uh, every day so five days a week he and I are um sharing poems boxing to each other you know critiquing each other's work so I have a, a really rigorous uh, writing life that isn't in any way divorced from other parts of my life. Um, my writing has always occurred like at the kitchen table until recently when I had kids um, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to invite them in. That's a big question. I'll get it like workshops when I teach. Like, how do you write when you have kids? And I just said, well, like, why don't you just invite them to write with you? Like, invite them to the table where you're sitting, mm-hmm. have them draw. Set that time up as a time of being creative. No, you're not going to have a lot of that time. It's going to be like a... (laughs) They will stay occupied for maybe quite as long as you could. Right, but um, but that's how I got through that, you know, having kids and writing. And now my kids have creative habits. Mm -hmm. They have little journals they draw on and write in. It's it's a, for me, writing is a, a real sort of tether to my existence. Now, when I think of a poet at work, I have this real romantic idea of you writing on like handmade paper with a fountain (laughs) pen in the golden hour. Right, right. Yeah. The the twilight coming in. But then you said boxer. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a very pragmatic tool. Um, I'm I'm finding uh, I love that app. Mm -hmm. It's Um, like a walkie talkie app. Yeah. I don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. It's. it allows us to have a very complex and intricate asynchronous conversation, right? So I can share a poem with my friend and then 
he's at work. So would you read a poem to him over Voxer instead of sending it by text? Yeah, what we'll do is we'll take a picture of what we've written, because I write by hand, so mm-hmm. I just take a picture. Oh, so and, I at least got that right. Yeah, Even yeah, if there's yeah, a fountain yeah, pen, the golden yeah, hour. Well, it's pencils, yeah, Ticonderoga pencils, and then we just kind of roll with it. So you take the picture, you, you read the poem, mm-hmm. I send it to him via text. Mm-hmm. He'll like listen to that, and then he'll respond on Voxer. Mm-hmm. And we do this five days a week. Um, and throughout the course of the day. So how long have you been doing that? Almost two years. Shockingly. Yeah. We were actually kind of laughing about it. The other day. I was like, I don't know anyone. <laughs> like, how did we do this? How did this end up staying for so long? Mm-hmm. So, um, and we take, you know, we take some time off every year, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, we hit about, um, I would say at least 40 weeks of the year we're doing that. Okay. So. I think this would be a good time to hear some of your work. Oh, okay, sure. Um, so I'll read a couple of poems. Uh, one from one um, one poem from each of the books that I've got out recently. Fantastic. Um, so the first one you're reading from, because you're in my house, I can see it, is These Intricacies, a collection yeah. I have on my shelf. I really enjoyed reading this, although I must say that it's very interesting. I've never known a poet as well as I know you, because we're friends in real life. Right. We, we know each right. other, we hang out. Right. Um, so I've never known a poet that well, even if I've like known them to say hi to at conferences or met them at signings. Right. It's not the same as knowing the wife, the children, the mother, the right. characters that appear in your poetry. And it was different. It was different. <laughs> it was very cool. And it felt... Um, I'm trying to avoid using the word intimate. Like, But poetry is an intimate medium, I think, in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, it's, it's certainly... Um, people, people very generally speaking, are, are much more quick to draw a direct line between the poem and the experience of the person who made it. Oh, I totally am. So is right. that a mistake as a reader? Um, well, it depends on who you're reading. Okay. Um, is and, it a mistake and, when reading you? Uh, not this book. Okay. Probably. <laughs> um, not, in, not in these intricacies. In the other book, we'll uh-huh. talk about that in a minute, um, but... But in the other book, it's a, bit, it's a big mistake. <laughs> um, well, I haven't and, read the other book yet. Yeah, I've been no, warned. It's okay. Um, but in this one, in fact, there's a, there's a little story about the editing of this book. So this book was just kind of um, culled from just the first 10 years of my writing life. Uh-huh. And um, there's a poem in here called The Jilted Husband Speaks. We won't, we won't read it, but it's about a... Um, it's about a uh, sort of this sort of this, an affair, right, between a husband and a wife. And, uh, and the, uh, the editor, who was very interested in having a very personal collection mm-hmm. of poems that were reflective of mm-hmm. me, um, said we had to cut this poem uh, because people are going to think that there was a, you had an affair. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that, that's not my problem. <laughs> so, so it stayed in um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, but this book is sort of divided up into two sections. Um, I could tell the difference for what it's worth. Right. Well, that's good. That's good. The title helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. You, I wouldn't. I don't think I've ever been described as jilted. <laughs> um, uh, there's two sections. Uh, the, well, there's three sections, but the first section and the third section are sort of poems of darkness. Uh, and moving in toward lightness, and then there's a section of, in the middle of, of a novena, nine-part mm-hmm. prayer. Mm-hmm. So I'll read um, the last poem in this collection, which is um, a, probably one of the earliest poems written in this book. Maybe not the earliest, but definitely one of the first. Um, so it's called Your Days Are Waiting. 
Their certainty made in the calm of a river, a way steady like the leaves that paper boat the surface of water, even a clamor of hooves throbbing in purple morning light narrows us, awaking in every wilderness. But even these things fall asleep inside the mind and slip away by night. How will you remember what it's like to stare into the constant moon, to watch the jet stream's hands push clouds through dark and stars like nestled ships on the ocean? Your days are waiting to be left behind, so now, before sleep makes a single forgetting, etch in yourself this moon, this leaf, this star. So that's a poem, I think, that that's sort of me, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. like, I'm always interested in how I experience things and how I... How I um, move that experience into making art mm-hmm. and that, that's a poem about directly like my experience these are mm-hmm. things that I've seen right and now I'm mm-hmm. kind of writing a poem sort of declaring those things is that the kind of work you started with because I know that at least in your published works if not what you're writing at home and boxing to your friends that you've um taken a step in a different direction in the past couple of years yeah yeah that's that's what I definitely started with I think that's a great place to start you write about what you know you write about who you are mm-hmm. and um this book is all about becoming a father and becoming a husband and mm-hmm. becoming like an adult. Like mm-hmm. that's what this book is, working out my life, um, my marriage, my fatherhood, my adulthood with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. A lot of the human experience that you were talking about right, earlier. Right, right. And, and because of that, it's very much based on, um, on my experiences, uh, whether they're experiences of watching my neighbor trim his garden or talking with my uh, father about buying a gun or watching my kids play in the park. They're all, mm-hmm. they're all like very kind of, mm-hmm. um, you can, you can draw a very clear line. There's mm-hmm. some imaginative stuff in it, but generally speaking, mm-hmm. not as much. The second collection, Our Father in the Year of the Wolf, um, is a much more, uh, sort of dark, um, and violent collection. This mm-hmm. is a very, uh, um, uh, this is a collection that's solely rendered, almost solely, uh, from my imaginative life. Um, it began, I've been writing, I was working on poems for this book for quite a while, and then um, an experience sort of uh, catalyzed the poems in a, in a very unique way. My, my next-door neighbor um, took his own life, and I found him. Um, when was this? This was uh, several years ago. Um, it's actually on my wife's birthday. It was a really wild, uh, extreme day. And um, we came home from having coffee. My, my kids luckily were with my parents, and uh, my wife and I went out. And we came home, and my neighbor was there in his driveway. And he had taken his life. Um, and the poems that were... Um, that I was writing at the time were really, um, some of them were very, quite dark, but I didn't know where they were coming from. Um, and then this happened and that kind of gave voice to the, that aspect of this work. Mm -hmm. 
um, knowing that you could live like, I mean, literally like 50 feet from someone, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, proximically, we spent more time near one another than I spent with every other person <laughs> right, right, right. in, in my mm-hmm. life, right? With the exception of my family, my own family. And we had no idea, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so this book, Our Father of the Year of the Wolf, sort of examines father and son relationships. Mm-hmm. And um, there's always, whenever you're talking about your own, whenever you're talking about relationships, there's always something that you kind of mirror into the experience. So then, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, relationships are complicated. Mm-hmm. So there's some personal stuff in here, but mm-hmm. but not not a whole lot. Um, generally speaking, the book is quite dark, um, quite... quite uh, quite different than the other one. It's a little more experimental as well. Mm-hmm. Lots of long lines, lots of fragmented narrative. So mm-hmm. uh, the book is about this father and son who are cursed to be werewolves, <laughs> which sounds very odd. Um, but the, the trope, the horror trope, mm-hmm. is sort of metaphorically um, and imaginatively rendered throughout this. It's also based on um, an old hagiograph of a Catholic saint named St. Nautilus who cursed a family, a clan in Ireland to be, to be werewolves. Okay. Confession. I don't know what a hagiograph is. Hagiograph is a, um, story about saints. So uh, any, any story you've heard about a saint is technically a hagiograph. And some of them, uh, some of these are a little more familiar to us. Um, like, uh, the story of Joan of Arc being killed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Mm-hmm. This one, um, but then some of them are very bizarre, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of magical realism and mm-hmm. all these kinds of strange things like werewolves, which I just found like complete. I just became completely like smitten with when I started reading all these. I was like, man, this is like a piece of my like religious tradition that I just didn't even think about, and is so strange and literary and compelling. And Wait, bizarre. are we still talking about werewolves? We are, because that story is like literally about this man cursing the family to be werewolves. Like that's what happens in the story. It's a, it's a okay. story. So novels, the so. listeners should probably know that we go to the Episcopal Church together. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, had yeah, no we're idea. Off, we're, off the, we're off the reservation. <laughs> the Episcopalians. <laughs> um, but but there's, a, there's a long history in... Um, the Christian tradition of writing about saints uh-huh. and their stories. Um, and, and again, some of those stories are very like down to earth. But this is a, there's two portions of the book where the father and son speak back and forth, uh-huh. um, not present to one another. So I'm going to read um, this poem. Here it is. It's called To Absalom. And we're kind of playing with biblical mm-hmm. motifs, mm-hmm. right? Absalom and David. I pulled you from the bundle of afterbirth as alien as you could be, emerging from a blood puddle like a bloom to bud. This, unlike any other surgery, less machine than what I'd made before, and more muscle to keep me. Medicine, masks, black bile sputtering from the sides of your mouth, small hand gathering itself around my thumb and helping me realize what's obvious to all of us. The body isn't made of metal, not to be dismantled, and it's not a cervix, but a womb, holy mechanism. It's not a cup, it's a cup, not a crotch. Woolly constellation, wheezing softer stuff. It's these contours and veins of the temple door that stretched to let you go. Half moon ear above a lipped horizon, and what it is is arms and filmy nails, 
Obedience to laws you don't know yet are there, or are not yet there to know. Allegiance to the earth you'll hang above. What I had to do, so simple, scrimping what I could and selling it in chop, tried to raise you best I could, and once I dreamed I was a king and cried the brambles of your tangled hair and asked for no more enemies, but awake it was the smell and gulp of you, little sack of salt, descended from the pocket of her belly, letting go a pulp I couldn't love the way I wanted to or knew I should. Little son, I've given to my greed to never rise against, transform, dappled crux of what we were, to reach you, cut you down, untangle, walking morning frost you'd let down your raveled curls in the cold full field, now dangled there, purgatory, slipped spine, a grave reaching in the rise, the sunken eyes, inherited vanity, rolled back to my, my, my beautiful, beautiful boy steaming in the rising sun, away the night's whole measure. Sweet and unknown God you won't become, forgive me everything I've ever done, turn it back to before, before. As a poet, do you think about the reader's reaction as you're writing? Do you think about it after you've written? It depends on what you're writing for me. Um, it depends on what I'm working on. Um, a poem and a book like this, mm -hmm. I'm thinking less about the reader. Mm -hmm. I'm asking the reader to keep up. Mm -hmm. um, how do you do that? How do I do that while I'm writing it? Yeah. Um, I, I write what I want and mm -hmm. then go back and think of the reader second mm -hmm. um, and think of how a reader will experience something. Um, whereas in the other book, these intricacies, I was thinking of the reader first. Mm -hmm. um, again, in both those collections, my allegiance is never to the truth of my experience, whether or not something actually happened, mm -hmm. which is a, another complicated thing for people, um, especially if they're writing poems. Um, when young writers are starting out, they want to keep things in poems because it actually happened, mm -hmm. which is like the worst thing to do if you <laughs> have a poem, um, is to keep it there for something that uh, was situational. With that, maybe we should talk about some of the poems I brought to read. Oh, I would love to hear. Um, so I brought, I brought five books to kind of introduce your readers to. Okay, Dave, so were these some of your personal favorites? Yeah, yeah, all these, all these books that have come out um, in, in the past decade or so have been books that I've, I've become really smitten with mm -hmm. for one reason or another, um, and usually really for different reasons. Uh, but they're all also books I've revisited uh -huh. which is pretty uncommon for me as a reader. I don't tend to revisit work very often. Mm -hmm. So if I read a book twice, it must be really doing something mm -hmm. for me. Um, the first book I brought was uh, by um, a guy named Matthew Lippman. He's a poet out of uh, the Boston area. And this book um, is one of his more recent books. It's called American Chew. It's a beautiful little book. Um, and Lippman's poems... Um, are so fascinating to me. Um, they traverse so much ground in each one. Mm -hmm. um, and so they can be really all over the place. When you read a Matthew Lippman poem, they go <laughs> from one end of the spectrum to another. Mm -hmm. They duck between history and pop culture, mm -hmm. um, and they fluctuate in mood, which is one of the things I love so much. Like, he, he writes with such abandon. Um, mm -hmm. 
and he doesn't temper it. Um, and in, over the course of his writing career, too, it's gotten more and more that way. It's like he's mm -hmm. taking off the filter with each subsequent book. So I love that. I'm so curious. Yeah. Okay, where would you recommend starting in the collection? Um, I, I would recommend uh, this poem, Meaningful Beauty. I swear to God, my heart fell out of my chest on the all-track elliptical machine when I saw Cindy Crawford on the television telling Valerie Bertinelli that she had found the magical de-aging product Meaningful Beauty, and that is why she looks 23 at 49. I wanted to jump into the TV and give her a handkerchief so she could wipe away the tears that were not there but were everywhere. For a moment, I wanted some Meaningful Beauty extract myself from that rare melon discovered in the south of France to relieve my own facial tics from ticking. I wanted to spread it all over my body and then go hug the little Asian kid on the corner who smelled like pork and my student Rodney who broke his foot on a basketball court in the Amazon jungle with no parents. I wanted to lie down with my daughter in her tantrum, all this meaningful beauty on my hands and rub her cheek on the back of her head, make it go away, then go away myself down to Washington, jump into a bed with Barack and his smoking hot sheets with all the disintegrating dollar bills. But then I realized that was Cindy's job and Valerie's too, who by the way, looks better now than she did on One Day at a Time. One day at a time, I think, is the meaningful beauty that I try to throw my arms around and my wife, who told me she was fat, but who looks better than all the Valerie's and Cindy's and Susie's put together, no matter what the madness is that wraps itself around the sense of self when one looks in the mirror. And our kids, too, who toss their dolls out the window, then jump after them in stupid splendor and pink, laughing like the whole world is never going to sleep. Our kids who don't sleep and eat every stitch of pineapple and toast we put in front of them. Come over to our house, Cindy. Jump out of your television face into the Monday morning 6 a.m. oily face and let, that, let those wrinkles dance. Let your brown spots gyrate. Let your body go, go, go. That is not what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, great poem. And this book is a wonderful little book. And when I say little, I mean it's very small in size. Um, and it's, it's a good amount of poems uh, in there. But uh, this is pretty part and parcel for Lutman's work. Mm -hmm. The sort of jumping back and forth mm -hmm. between these sort of odd scenarios. It's wonderful. The next book um, I brought was a book called Sand Opera. Um, and it's a bit more serious in its, um, its uh, content uh, and um, execution as well. The book's experimental and political. It's complex. It's engaging. It's intertextual. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you can see here, your readers will, or your listeners will be able to see, but you can see how he takes maps from these reports and he interlays them over the poems. So the poems are written in some ways around that's very the, cool. The map, yeah. Um, he also does what they call erasure, where he takes pieces of documents and redacts them to to make them into uh, other poems. So it's quite a collection. Um, and there's a small section in here um, about sort of coming of age, um, watching his his daughter come of age too, uh, watching and reflecting on his experience. 
Um, so this is a, a section from Hung Liars. She asks, is that man crying or singing? How should I answer? War takes him in its fingers, raises his body, a punctured bone, flute to its lips, and breathes the living dust to dust alone. This is the air we sculpt, air of ancestors and ash pits, just five, the child's baptized into this unhappiness. She corrects the voices. She hears butcher, the name of the country she's never seen. It's Iraq, not Iraq. So this, uh, again, this is taken out of context. This is a hard book to read from without the larger pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things I wanted to do was sort of give your listeners um, uh, something that might be on the more left of center side. From, mm -hmm. uh, if, if Mary Oliver's on one side, mm -hmm. uh, this book, Sand Opera, is probably uh, past that center line and a little bit more to the left because it deals with um, things that are a bit more taboo mm -hmm. um, and as well deals with them in sort of this fragmented way. And you can see here on this, there's very little punctuation in the way of what we're used to. It's one sentence, essentially, this whole line. Okay. This will mark me as such a novice, but it looks so yeah. much like E.E. E. Cummings ah, on the page. <laughs> well, it does. And Cummings was famous for that. Mm -hmm. Cummings was famous for having us engage the poem as a, as a piece of visual matter, mm -hmm. um, not just a piece of textual matter. Mm -hmm. So the, the shape of the poem on the page matters mm -hmm. to poets now. Mm -hmm. um, and when free, when, poets now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When you write as opposed verse, to before? Uh, before modernism, it, it mattered much less than okay. the sound structures in the poem. Interesting. And, uh, rhymes mm -hmm. of the, um, sort of the scannable iambic structures. Mm -hmm. And now, um, in light of sort of the absence of form, mm -hmm. as we think about it, when mm -hmm. we talk about form and poetry, um, the shape of a poem can become kind of its form. So, um, and you'll see that, and, and this is a great book to, to, to demonstrate that with. You can see large pieces of white space mm -hmm. in the book, um, and kind of different sort of uh, interplays between images and pieces of text, right? Mm -hmm. So it looks like this poem kind of is entering into the prison cell, That's right? That's very yeah, cool. it's wild. Yeah, it's a really interesting way. It's also, it's also disorienting for the reader enough for us to experience the things Metris is trying to say through the work, mm -hmm. right? And that's really important mm -hmm. uh, for a work that's that, that's that way. This, okay, what's next? This book is um, Lucille Clifton's book, Blessing the Boats. Um, so you can see this is definitely more than, uh, more than 10 years old. But this is a book that's been um, a wonderful totem for me. It's a book that I've revisited mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, and I... One of the reasons I love uh, Clifton is because she's feminine and exact and vivid. Mm -hmm. um, and she, she allows me access to an imagination and an experience and a wisdom that I don't have access to mm -hmm. bodily, racially. Um, and she, she taught me, she teaches me how to read empathically. Mm -hmm. right? um, so this poem is called My Dream About Being White. Mm -hmm. Hey, music and me, only white. Hair, 
A flutter of fall leaves circling my perfect line of a nose, no lips, no behind. Hey, white me, and I'm wearing white history. But there's no future in those clothes, so I take them off and wake up dancing. A poem like this is a pretty startling poem for a white reader, I think. Um, there's a lot of sort of political implications, racial implications. She's talking about... It makes me uncomfortable, like, mm -hmm. as a white man, the mm -hmm. way she's talking about her imagined white body, right? Um, and I have to reckon with some things that I would never have to reckon with otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the reasons I chose uh, Clifton, because she consistently, um, throughout her work, uh, is pushing me to reckon with an experience that isn't my own, mm -hmm. that exists for so many people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things that's, that poetry is really powerful about. Mm -hmm. Writing in general, art in mm -hmm. general is powerful that way. But um, poetry is able to do this uniquely in that, I mean, that poem is maybe 15 lines, mm -hmm. and they're all very short lines, right? Mm -hmm. And we have access to this moment of, of the speaker in the poem imagining what it is like to mm -hmm. be in a body other than her own. And mm -hmm. the biggest I'm a reader, not in that body either. I'm imagining what it's like to be in that body, to be in a white woman's body, right? Mm -hmm. It's different. I have a hard time accessing, um, it seems the shorter the work, the more I feel like I either need to see it on the page mm -hmm. or hear it like nine times before yeah. it really sinks into my brain. I was listening to one of the poetry podcasts you recommended. Mm -hmm. What's it called? It's the one out of pen where they do a close but not too close reading. Poetry off the shelf. Yes, it was yeah, poetry yeah. off the shelf. Yeah. And they were reading an old Dickinson poem, right. the one, I am a loaded gun. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was really struggling to grasp a familiar poem right. auditorily. I just I don't know if that's because it's, that's not what I'm used to or because it's so dense. It is. And that, what we were saying before about consumption versus contemplation, mm -hmm. this is a perfect example. It did make me feel like Google has destroyed my brain. There, <laughs> that seems like a real possibility. It could be. Well, maybe we instead of couching it that way, we used to say Google has modified our brain in a really unique fashion. <laughs> because there are poets who do work with um, intertextuality and Google mm -hmm. and search engines and um, there's a uh, lot well. of things. Yeah, it's, it's the world <laughs> that of, sounds yeah, it's interesting. Different. And the world yeah. of poems isn't just what we're kind of taught to think of. Uh -huh. um, and so that's one of the reasons I brought Metris along um, was to to demonstrate that there are sort of these integrations happening and have been happening for quite some time uh, with poets and um, other forms of art. But what you're talking about. Um, isn't an uncommon experience. And I think that's one of the reasons people are so drawn to slam poetry. Mm -hmm. um, because slam poetry is not designed for a page. It's designed for a performance. Right? It's, yes. it's got a totally different design. So uh -huh. a poem like um, some of the poems we've been reading here, or my poems, aren't necessarily designed to be read aloud as much as they are experienced with an open book. Uh-huh. The Metris book is a great example. Uh, Clifton's book um, is Clifton's poems in general are that way, right? They're very long, slender mm -hmm. poems, and they that controls the energy that mm -hmm. you as you move through it. Um, my book, Our Father, You're the Wolf, 
is a fragmented narrative. So pieces of poems come back later on mm -hmm. in, in other parts of the book. Mm -hmm. There's a call and response to it. So that's something that does happen quite a bit um, that probably wouldn't happen in the average piece of fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, it happens, I think, in experimental fiction quite a bit, but um, that sort of intertextual play and all mm -hmm. that. But, but uh, yeah, poems can be frustrating. And that's one of the reasons I think people get so distant from them is because we're trained generally speaking now that if it's not immediately accessible to us mm -hmm. that it's not um it, it doesn't concern us right and poetry asks you to kind of get rid of that idea completely for a reader uh, so for readers who either read familiar poetry, mm -hmm. but don't know how to expand into the unfamiliar, or who don't read any poetry at all right, right now, and would like to try, it sounds like it's important that they should know going in. Just because it's not easy immediately. Doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Right. That's There's not a reason true. to give up, but a That's, reason to no, persevere. No, it's a reason to keep going, because the, the reward will come. Um, the first poem that I ever... Uh, Emily Dickens has this quote about her head being removed. <laughs> she's, experienced, you know, she's experienced a poem and she feels like her head has been removed mm -hmm. from her shoulders. Mm -hmm. um, that experience doesn't happen often, mm -hmm. um, to me anyway. Um, but the first poem it ever happened to me with was by William Stafford's uh, poem, Traveling Through the Dark. I felt like I had been punched. Um, and uh, you can Google that poem. It's a wonderful uh, little poem. Uh, but his work became so important to me. Uh, it taught me how to read poems. It taught me how to experience them. He's a great poet um, for someone who's looking to just sort of get access to learning to read poetry. Mm -hmm. He'd be a good one. Mm -hmm. Who else um, would you recommend for those who are learning to read poetry? For those who are learning to read, um, I would say, of course, I, I, we also want to get past our, our, little, our little trivium of... Uh, of Barry, Oliver, Collins. Collins. Um, another poet that I would really um, recommend would be Clifton. Uh, she would be someone who would teach you um, how poets can move between realistic and imaginative spaces very mm -hmm. quickly. Um, Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet. Spell that for us. H-E-A-N-Y. Okay. Yeah, he would be someone that would be uh, wonderful to read. If you if you're looking at, um, you know, this is this is actually a really um, this is a great place to talk about. If you're looking to kind of see where po poetry is right now, uh, the National Book Award mm -hmm. is a really great resource for that. Um, and then you know, with our prizes and things, people argue about those things until kingdom come mm -hmm. right but um with poetry uh books that are nominated for the national book award um tend to give a very clear picture of that year in poetry interesting and it's a it's a really wonderful list mm -hmm. I, I i i'm sure that there are people that disagree with me i can't think of a year in recent history where it wasn't a good sort of bird's eye view of what poets were doing what do you like to read as a regular reader, not as a professional anything. As a regular reader, I like to read people's diaries and journals. Like whose? Um, let's see. last one I read that I really enjoyed was... Um, Hervé Hubert's The Mausoleum of Lovers. 
She's a, a photographer, uh -huh. a twin screen photographer, and this is like his journal, unedited, unmitigated, it's, uh, and it's undated. So it... Um, that is a big fat book. It is a very big fat book. It's incredible, and it's super um, earnest. In fact, on the back, I love this. I will disappear. I will have hidden nothing from this journal. And it's, is he living up to it? Yes, he's living up to it. Um, but I love, I love seeing journals teach teach us. Um, I think how people think, and I love reading the journals of artists and writers in particular, uh, because they often show me and demonstrate how a person, how a person's mind works. Is that leisure? Is that education? Is that all of the above for you? That's all the above. Yeah, that's all the above. Um, I'm actually, um, I was actually thinking about this because I read um, really promiscuously, really carnally. Um, I, as opposed to courtly. Yes, as opposed to courtly. I, you know, I write in all my books. Mm -hmm. They're abused. They're mm -hmm. rolled up. They're folded. Um, <laughs> and I also read without much intention. Mm -hmm. I don't plan. Um, I have... I is that a deliberate choice to read it's, without it, intention? It's it's more of a choice because um, I'm going to confess something that might be very foreign to a lot of your listeners. Ooh, and we to like you. confessions. I I don't. Um, some people I know, you uh, friends we've got, that all they want to do is curl up with a book and just devour that book, and they can do that for a very long period of time. That has never happened to me once. <laughs> like, the only time something close like that happened was when I read Dawn by Ellie Weissel. Uh -huh. I read that, and it's like 90 pages. <laughs> so that was like the only time. It hasn't, it hasn't really happened since either. I, I um, can read for only about 45 minutes at a time, mm -hmm. and then I want to go like make something or draw or play guitar or mm -hmm. do photographs mm -hmm. or write myself or work on my house or some, some mm -hmm. other thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I, um, I love reading, but I don't love reading, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if you do this, but, um, like I said, I don't have any sort of intention or planning with the reading, mm -hmm. but I'll get books and they'll sit on my shelf. And then all of a sudden, like sit there for a year, two mm -hmm. years untouched. And then all of a sudden I'm ready to read them. I don't know what changes. I don't know what switch mm -hmm. flips. I don't mm -hmm. know what happens. But I suddenly look up and I'm like, that book, today's the day. And here we go. Um, there's so few. And I, 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 I've tried to figure out what it is that gets me to that point. But there's mm -hmm. so few to like delights and surprises in life, mm -hmm. like real ones, mm -hmm. that I kind of don't want to know. Um, and sometimes I think it's the cover. Sometimes I think I buy, like I just buy the book because it mm -hmm. looks pretty. Mm -hmm. or, Interesting. That's a good uh, reason. I think so too. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that adage is not correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says don't judge. It doesn't right, say don't yeah, purchase. That's true. That's true. <laughs> don't it, I wish it had said don't purchase because I think I might be a bit more wealthy. <laughs> so, <laughs> that would be nice. Well, I uh, like that as a poet, you're doing your fair share of keeping authors alive. You got to. You got That's to. the other part too, right? I mean, if you, if every, if every one of your readers right now, mm -hmm. or your listeners rather, went out and bought a book by a living contemporary poet, the market probably wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it would be a, uh, it would be a glut. It would be, it would be great. So. That would be amazing. Yeah. That's would, a worthy goal. It would. It we'll is see if we can goal. organize. Yeah. Readers. Yeah. Maybe we could do like a, a poetry book buying day. So. 
You have to go to an independent, though, because they carry more of a wide selection of contemporary living authors. That is good to know. Yeah. So there's this book I really like. It's nonfiction. It's mm -hmm. called This Is Where You Belong. It's mm -hmm. by Melody Warnick, who's been a previous guest on the show. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, participating in and loving the community you live in. Mm -hmm. So she talks about this thing that has happened in small towns she has lived in in the past called a cash mob, where mm -hmm. it's an organized public event where people show up and spend money in a few local businesses in mm -hmm. one particular section of town. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Maybe we could have a bookish cash mob. That would be a good idea. We could do it right here in your bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not selling the books, Dave. <laughs> no, that's a great idea, and I—that's another thing I think that's attractive about poetry. It does—it does feel like a localized effort um, in some respects. Obviously, you have poets who are who are big bestsellers kind of people, but but there's so the many, rare birds who actually yeah, are, not only make money writing but make money writing, writing, writing poetry. poetry. Yeah, that's very—it's like seeing a dog walk on its hind legs. <laughs> um, but it, it it's. One of the things that, that appeals to sort of the collector in, mm -hmm. the, in me mm -hmm. is that there are just so many good poets writing mm -hmm. that you could you could read a new book of poetry every day and you'd still not find some of the best poets. So that's that's something that I really do enjoy mm -hmm. is sort of that hidden gem mm -hmm. effect that mm -hmm. happens. Like you something clicks and you fall in love with that book mm -hmm. and there it is and mm -hmm. you have a new favorite poet. Um, I, I'm sure that fiction has something comparable, um, but it seems to me that. Um, Poetry does that in a pretty unique way, in my, at least in my mind. Okay, Dave, those are some really interesting favorites, and not along the same lines other guests have shared. So you and I have talked about how you like listening to what people are not so crazy about on the podcast. Uh -huh. yeah, I, I, I don't want you to be on the show and bypass that opportunity. No, Do you want to share something no, that's not your cup of tea? I, I would um, like to. What, what, I don't know if I have... This is a sincere answer to this question. I really struggled to think about a book that I just don't like. And I cannot think of one because I literally do not finish them. If a book is not... There, there's so much to read and so many other beautiful things waiting. Mm -hmm. and I know it's a really bad habit, but if a book doesn't like... Yeah, I, I just put it down. And okay. I don't. You have to explain yourself, though. Because you just urged me as a poetry reader I know. 20 minutes ago I know. to not give up if it's not immediately accessible. So how do you know the difference? Well, usually it's not access, it's interest. The, my, rule, my rule as a reader, again, because reading for me is a habit more than a pleasure. Okay. Um, reading for me has one singular rule that is don't bore me. And if I'm bored that book gets put down and it does not get picked up again. I, I only hate things that waste my time. And I, I've never given myself over to the opportunity to hate a book because I don't let it waste my time, which is a totally kind of cop-out answer. But honestly, there isn't a book on my shelf that I don't love or have yet to learn to love or hate. And if, if I don't love it, and it's just kind of like, meh, it goes. So there's a lot of unfinished books that can't parody. <laughs> like a lot. Um, and, I, and I, again, not saying it's a great habit. Um, but it doesn't sound you're changing it. Right. right. No, not changing it. It's definitely terrible mm -hmm. dating advice. <laughs> 
<laughs> and relationship advice. But for books, I think that we're justified in a in I'm justified in this posture because this is a world of so many um, immediately uh, gratifying things which pass uh, as substantive. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I find something that I really do love, um, I'm immediately connected and engaged mm-hmm. and present to it in a way that I'm not with other books. So it, it's not, again, it's not a kind answer. It's not, um, it also doesn't allow me, um, you know, there's no literary gossip that can happen here. But it, enough of that, what happens with this question. <laughs> but it often is interesting to see what people don't like and what they do. Mm-hmm. But that's for me, that's the, that's the real issue is I, I just don't read it. Mm-hmm. I put it down. I give it to someone else who I think might like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and not like, oh, you'll like this. <laughs> like not in an insulting way. But just because our mm-hmm. preferences are also different. Mm-hmm. And there are so many poets out there mm-hmm. writing uh, that... They're all, they're all, we're all trying to get a crack at it. What bores you? Is it writing style? Is it themes? Are there characteristics? Themes will definitely do it. Um, Like what? Like if I have to read one more poem about... About a dog. I just don't want to hear a poem about a dog Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Or a poem about, uh, um, you know, how I, I saw um, my... My kids coloring and and I just realized how beautiful everything is. Like I, what I what I think I referred to earlier as the suburban epiphany, right? Mm-hmm. Where um, someone realizes what they have mm-hmm. in the moment. I just I don't know if it's my if it's a cynicism. I don't think it's. I don't think I'm a cynical person, but I'm just not interested in that. Mm-hmm. I, I have, like I said, I have um, those experiences in my existence. Mm-hmm. I don't go to art. To affirm my existence, I go to art to escape my existence mm-hmm. or, or transform it in some mm-hmm. unique way. So maybe that's the the underlying idea of what is uh, pushing that justification of like if this is boring me, I'm done. So, I also read a lot of like science books and history, mm-hmm. anthropology, mm-hmm. and because those are so bizarre. Reading a book about time right now. Why Does Time Fly, I think is what it's called. Have you read that? It's crazy. No, I've seen it, though. It's messed up. Like, it just is... Me- it's just the whole thing. Like, every page, I'm just like, what? <laughs> uh, the book Sapiens did that to me, too. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't... Like, nothing about it was boring. Mm-hmm. Everything about it seemed... Uh, even if it's stuff I already knew, mm-hmm. factual information about anthropology, mm-hmm. knew, its presentation, its tone, all that. So, so that's it. Don't bore me is the rule because there's just so much other stuff that is both substantive and unboring. Okay, this is unfair to pull a pop quiz on you. No, this is what a pop quiz is. Three I'm a teacher. poems. I deserve it. Turnabout is fair play. Okay. Mm-hmm. So three poems, easy to remember names that listeners can remember to Google that they may not love but will not bore them. Let's go for short, sweet, and Googleable. Okay. Go. Okay. William Stafford, his poem, um, uh, A Message from the Wanderer, won't bore you. Okay. It's a fascinating, beautiful life poem. Lee Young Lee, 
the hammock. That's L I Young L E E. Thank you. Uh, and then Amy McCann's poem um, Icarian, as in Icarus. It's a wonderful poem. You can just get that right on Poetry Daily. Uh, and there's a poem that Poetry Foundation did, if you just want to laugh. Um, What's that? It's called, I Google Myself. <laughs> um, okay, just the name made me it's laugh. It's delightful and dirty and hilarious. It did also bring um, three poetry anthologies for your readers that would be really interesting for them to take a look at. Um, that would give them access to a lot of contemporary poetry that, you know, they're, they're not collections themselves, but they are um, several different poets, you know, in that, in that anthology, and there'd be something in there for everyone. So Here's what we're going to do. We are going to send those out in the newsletter. Listeners, mm -hmm. if you go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter, we will send out a list of those anthologies along with Dave's short commentary on each. I just got you a job. Okay. Well, <laughs> I can do it. All right. This has been fun. Thanks so much for talking poetry with me today. Oh, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And um, everyone out, get out there and buy a book by a living poet. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dave today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Dave and let him know there what you thought of the titles we talked about today. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 75, and it's also where you'll find the full list of the titles and articles we covered today. Next week, we have a special episode coming your way. As you may know, we held our first live event earlier this month at the Novel Neighbor in St. Louis. It was a blast, and if you couldn't be there, or even if you could, we have the audio from that live show ready to share with you. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss the special episode, or subscribe in iTunes by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash iTunes. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. We're at What Should I Read Next, and we'll be hosting a book giveaway there for two of Dave's poetry collections later this week. Follow us now so you're ready to win. Readers, if you enjoy the book talk here on this podcast, the nicest thing you can do is to pop over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews and ratings go a long way toward helping other book lovers find the show. Thanks so much for those reviews and for spreading the book love. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, Ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. 
You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.